We're going to be talking today about experiencing God in terrible times. So to introduce the message, uh, please give your attention to the screens. He wanted me to give you a testimony about my life and how good he's been to me. I don't know what to tell you about him. I love him so much with all my heart and my soul. With every bone in my body, I love him so much because he's done so much for me. Every morning, every day of my life, I won't always be crying tears in the middle of the night and I won't always have to wake up by myself wondering how I'm going to get through the day. I won't always have to think about what I'm going to do and how I'm going to, how I'm going to make it, how I'm going to get there because he, he's going to be there for me. Someday the sky above will open up and he will reach out his hand and guide me through. Oh yes, he will. I won't always be crying these tears. I won't always be feeling so blue. Someday, he will open up the door for me and call my name. Someday he will. I don't know if anybody understands what that feels like. No matter what you've been through or where you've been, he's always there with his arms open wide, accepting me for who I am. And I love him so much. I couldn't do it without him, I wouldn't want to. Oh, I'm crying now. Feels so good to be free. To be accepted for who you are and love no matter what. Oh Lord, thank you. You are the joy of my life. Experiencing God in terrible times. We've all been there. There's hope. That voice in the darkness, that voice that says, someday, someday he will. Our text for today is the first half of Genesis chapter 35. Uh, It is a story that has devastating sin on one side and heartbreaking sorrow on the other. Here's what I mean. When we last saw Jacob in chapter 33, he finally had been reconciled with his brother Esau. And he was settling down in the land God had promised him. Sounds great. All is well. But what happens next in Genesis chapter 34 is almost too grim and gritty to be read in church. It's violent. It's bloody. And that's why I'm calling today's message Experiencing God in Terrible Times. Here's what happens in Genesis 34. Let me summarize it instead of reading the whole long, tragic event. Here's what happened. Uh, Jacob has only one daughter. Her name is Dinah. She is raped by one of the local boys named Shechem. Uh, Her older brothers... Simeon and Levi go absolutely berserk. 
and they hatch a plan of revenge. Uh, it involves pretending to invite the town into covenant with the Lord and themselves, uh, which would require all the men to be circumcised. And so while all the men were incapacitated from that procedure and unable to defend themselves, Simeon and Levi massacre every last man in town. And the rest of their brothers then join in in looting and pillaging the whole community. Terrible times. Yes, that is all in the Bible. The Bible, you may know by now, is a book of unflinching truth. It shows us our deep need for both God's justice and God's mercy. Verses 30 and 31 of chapter 34 tell how that story ends. Uh, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, his sons, You have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? So what would a hideous event like that do to a person, let alone a parent? Frederick Buchner, in his novel about Jacob that I've mentioned to you before, it's called Son of Laughter, he has Jacob say this, The bitterness and terror that was in the blood of the slain men of Shechem seeped through their skin and into the blood of their slayers and into all of us. It became our bitterness and terror and taint. We were an abomination in the sight of the fear. That is his name for God. We were an abomination in our own sight. We avoided each other's eyes and touch like the eyes and touch of lepers. We were like rats gibbering and scuttling through the wreckage we had made of ourselves. That's powerful. Terrible times. And then on the other side of our story for today, we have the the second half of Genesis chapter 35, and it contains deep, deep sorrow. Uh, In it, the love of Jacob's life, Rachel, dies after giving birth to their son. She lives long enough to give him a name that means son of my sorrow. Jacob mercifully changes the baby's name. How'd you like to go through life, son of my sorrow? So Jacob changes the baby's name to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, or really, my favorite son. And then to make matters worse, Jacob's oldest son, Reuben, sleeps with Bilhah, one of the maidservants to Jacob's wife, a blatant grab for power in the family, power over his father. Soon thereafter, Isaac the father of Jacob and Esau dies. So this is ugly stuff. This is heartbreaking stuff. It's a mess. And it is in the middle of all this sin on one side and sorrow on the other that we have today's text in the first half of Genesis 35. Over the years, uh, I've talked with lots of people uh, whose children who had been strong in their faith through high school have walked away from the Lord, leaving a trail of wreckage behind them. Uh, Sometimes broken marriages, affairs, children born out of wedlock, bankruptcy, even cults and occultism. And sometimes just plain old hedonism, 
and materialism. And then I've talked with others uh, whose spouse had been diagnosed with cancer or faced life-threatening surgery or who had recently died. I mention those things because situations like these, as it must have been for Jacob, situations like these are so disorienting. I mean, a person doesn't know where to turn, what, what to do, or even sometimes how to think. So, I wonder... Where do you turn in terrible times when you face devastating sin on one side and heartbreaking sorrow on the other? I believe our text for today is very helpful. It it tells us where to turn. First of all, when trouble overwhelms us, God reminds us to return to him. When trouble overwhelms us, God reminds us to return to him. You know, the night after that Shechem Massacre must have been a very long, dark night for Jacob. And perhaps it was that very night that God spoke to him, as recorded in Genesis 35, verse 1. And God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. You remember what happened at Bethel. Decades earlier, Jacob had been fleeing from his brother Esau. He had stopped to sleep in one of the most desolate places in the wilderness. And he had a stairway to heaven dream. You remember that? He saw angels going up and down heavenly stairs from earth to heaven and back, while God stood at the top and spoke, promising to give Jacob that very land, along with descendants who would fill the earth and be too numerous to count. So Jacob called that place Bethel, house of God. He built an altar there, made a vow to the Lord that he would be his God and that this place would be God's house and Jacob would give him a tenth of everything God gave him. Now, after the horrors of Shechem, God calls Jacob back to Bethel. Isn't that interesting? You know, God is like that. He calls you back. Author Joyce Baldwin put it like this, Bethel stood for everything that really mattered. Bethel stood for everything that really mattered. And God called Jacob back to what really mattered in the midst of those terrible times. God called Jacob back to return there. There's a place like that for each of us too, I believe. I think of what C.S. Lewis wrote in The Problem of Pain, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Now, Lewis was writing at that point about how God uses pain to try to get the attention of those who are living life without God. But I believe pain also gets the attention of forgetful Christians. And I do think forgetfulness was one of Jacob's problems here. Scholars think that Jacob and his family had lived in Shechem for a long time at this point, maybe 10 years. And it was two decades before that that he had made that vow to God at Bethel. And he had never returned. He had never returned to Bethel to fulfill that vow. So when I read between the lines, I see a kind of spiritual carelessness and casualness in Jacob and his family. Uh, His children grew up without a sense of God's 
presence and God's holy presence with them. Now, they knew about their covenant with God and his promises, but idols were being worshipped in the family, and no one seemed to give it a second thought. And so the murderous revenge that was carried out by Jacob's sons, well, that also shows just how out of whack these grown children had become. It was pain that finally got Jacob's attention again. God is only at the center of our lives if we keep him there. Sadly, it's so easy to shuttle him off to the side. You know how it goes. Life is busy. There's this and that needing to be done. It's always one thing after another. Plus, going back to a holy place to have a personal revival. If you think starting a diet is difficult, that's much, much harder to return to a holy place as an unholy person. But when sin and sorrow have shut everything down, have shut down all of life's joy, all of life's delight, closing all the doors of escape, sin on one side, sorrow on the other, God is there. God beckons us back to himself, whispering, I'm here, come, come to me, I'm waiting for you. And maybe you know that feeling, experiencing God in terrible times. Next, when we return to God, we are forced to search our souls. When we return to God, we are forced to search our souls. Before Jacob sets out, he puts his spiritual house in order. Look at what Jacob did the morning after he heard from the Lord. Verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, and purify yourselves, and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had, and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Wow. How does something like that translate into our own experiences? Well, think of it like this. World leaders, star athletes, celebrities, they all have their security guards, but everyone has security gods. Are you with me? You know what I'm saying? The rich and famous have their security guards, but all of us have our security gods. When we return to the Lord, we must get rid of our security gods. Jacob had been living with these idols and other religious paraphernalia for years, decades. You'll remember that Rachel, she had stolen her father Laban's household gods. She thought it wouldn't hurt to have a little extra security for their journey, just in case God didn't come through the way they hoped. And they didn't choose these idols instead of God, at least not in their own minds, but apparently they did. They thought, well, these gods would just add a little security to whatever God would give or would do. I don't know about you, but I think it used to be easier to identify idols. You used to be able to reach out and touch them. People used to give them bodies and hands and feet. 
But now, most idols wear an invisibility cloak. They're there, but we don't really see them. They're there in our homes, on our mantles, by our beds, in our heads, but we can't see them very well. For example, the marketing manager position could be a god for you, or the prestige of an advanced degree. For some, the pursuit of health and fitness has become a religion. For some, it is financial security. For others, it is finding their true self. Once, when I asked God to help me see my invisible gods, he showed me this ugly little wart of a god with a whip in his hand that I've bowed down to ever since I was a kid. And what a slave driver that idol of the heart has been for me. Its name is having to be the best at everything. Having to be the best at everything. Perfectionism. There's no rest and there's no enjoyment to be found with a God like that in your life. We sang that Kyrie eleison because I asked Bob if we could because I need it. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. So I'll tell you, this season of of Advent, I am really seeking to bury that God on a daily basis, and I'm finding it to be a fight. It's a fight. I'm trying to remember and rejoice in the fact that to us, a child is born. To you, John, a son is given. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. I need that. Mighty God, oh, I need that. Everlasting Father, I need that. Prince of Peace, I need that. And by the way, John, the government will be upon his shoulders. Which means running everything perfectly is upon his shoulders. Not mine, not yours. (laughs) He is and has everything that I need. Amen? So how about you? Let's think about those gods that are wearing the invisibility cloak so you won't notice them. What are the ugly little gods, those ugly little warts that need to be buried? Before we can go back to a holy place with God, we we have to root out the other gods that have wormed their way into our lives and bury them under an old oak tree somewhere. Next, when we return to the Lord, we have to come clean. We have to come clean. Jacob said to all his people, purify yourselves and change your clothes. Why? This was an Old Testament version of what baptism would be in the New Testament for believers. For Jacob's household, the ceremonial washing and putting on of clean clothes That was an outward sign of the need for an inward change, a change of the heart. It's the language of repentance, isn't it? To give you an example, some of you may have a favorite T-shirt that you have at home, and it's old and it's ratty, and you wear it on your day off or when your work is going to get you dirty. Your spouse wants you to get rid of it, but you kind of like it. You know, it's comfortable. It fits you, right? You don't mind the stains and the rips. Well, our souls get like that. 
Our inner lives have these spots and smudges and stains and rips picked up from life, who knows where. Something I watched left a stain. A snide remark left another. A cutting remark tore a hole in it. Some sly game I played to get ahead is behind that greasy spot over there. And this is what I like to wear. I'm used to it. It fits me. I'm comfortable dressed like that. James 4 tells us to do what Jacob told his family to do. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Cleaning up, that's a painful business, folks, isn't it? And we can't wash our sins and stains away, of course. Only God can do that. Only the blood of Christ can do that. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's truth to live by every day. So we have to humble ourselves before that truth, before God himself. Deep repentance. It's painful to face the truth about this or that in our lives, this rip, that stain. Deep repentance is not easy. It's not easy to throw away that dirty old T-shirt, that ripped-up shirt that we just love to wear. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, he said, you were taught, he's writing to believers, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your mind. And to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And Paul goes on, I won't read it, I'll just summarize it. Paul goes on to tell us to put off specific things like lying and anger, stealing and loafing, unwholesome talk and bitterness. Also that we might be able then to put on some new things in their place. Things like kindness, compassion, forgiveness. Returning to Jacob, notice what he says in verse 3. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So Jacob... It's almost like he's looking back over all the ups and downs in his life and realizing that God has been his one constant. When we look back over our lives, I think we'll see the same thing, that God is our one constant. And we cannot help but think, like Jacob, God answered me in the day of my distress. Has God ever done that for you? He has been with me wherever I have gone. Do you know that's true? Have you experienced that? When we search our souls, we will realize how great our debt is to the Lord. He has saved us. He has been with us. He has cared for us. He has been utterly faithful to us. Verses 5 through 7 show kind of the final stage of this soul-searching process. Verse 5, Then they set out, 
And the terror of God fell upon the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. You see, God is with them. He's protecting them. Verse 6, Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar and he called the place El Bethel because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. So the final step in our soul searching is to bow before our altar to God. What's our altar? Our, Our altar is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where the sacrifice, the one and only final bloody, final blood sacrifice was made. So this is no ordinary time of prayer that we're talking about. Here's where we bow before God with the sacrifice of Jesus before us as our only hope for his pardon and his welcome. And God does welcome and pardon us for Jesus' sake. We humble ourselves. We thank God for all his love and grace toward us, none of which we've deserved. And we tell God of our love for him in return. We love because he first loved us and our desire to renew our devotion to him. We push everything else out of the room. We put time aside. And all the while, we wait in the presence of God. We seek his face. And we soon find that it is good to be back with the Lord. It is so good to be back with the Lord. No matter what other turmoil or trouble is around us, there is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God. There's an odd verse in our text also that I think underlines the importance of this kind of seeking of the Lord. I want you to consider verse 8. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak below Bethel. So it was named Alan Bakuth, and that means oak of weeping. What in the world is that verse doing here? I mean, why is it there? Here's why I think it's there. Rebecca, you remember, was the mother of Jacob and Esau. And her nurse, Deborah, would have been well over 100 years old at this point. She's only mentioned here in this verse in the Bible. The really strange thing is not that Deborah's death is mentioned, but that Rebecca's is not. Do you remember when Rebecca conspired with Jacob to deceive Isaac for the blessing? Do you remember that? Do you remember what Rebecca said at that point? She said that she would take upon herself any curse that would come from that. I don't know. Maybe that's what happened. In any case, we never hear of Rebecca again. We only hear of her nurse, Deborah. The subtle message to all of us is that Rebecca never made it to Bethel. She never made it to Bethel. She never made it to the house of God. Perhaps because she was faithless. Perhaps because she had invited, willingly invited God's curse into her life. If that's what it took to get what she really wanted. So her nurse made it to Bethel, but she herself did not. And she is forgotten. Remember, and and this is sobering, this is so sobering, that not everyone who makes their home among God's people makes it into God's presence. This is very sobering. Experiencing God in terrible times. Finally, 
Even in the worst of life's disasters and sorrows, God will bless us. Even in the worst of it, God will bless us. In other words, he's committed. He is so committed to you in Jesus Christ. So committed. Jacob has done all he can to return to God and keep his vow. Verses 9 through 13 tell us what God does in light of Jacob's actions. Verse 9. After Jacob returned from Paddan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you. And I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Those are wonderful words. God appeared to him again and blessed him. Think of that. Think of that for a moment. With all this blood and sorrow surrounding Jacob, God blessed him again, right there in the midst of the worst of it. And I think we can look at these verses from two angles. First, through Jesus, we experience what God promised to Jacob. Through Jesus. See, here God reiterates the change of Jacob's name to Israel. This is our heritage too. By our faith in Israel's Messiah, this is our people too. Verse 11 is the language of a new creation. God says to Jacob, did you catch it? He says... What he first said to Adam and Eve in the garden, be fruitful and increase in number. So this is, a, this is a fresh start. This is a recreation. And I believe God saw you and he saw me in his mind's eye when he said this to Jacob. Verse 11 also says, kings will come from your body. Now, it would be some 800 years before Israel would have any kings but they would be Jacob's descendants. What's more important is that from this royal line of Jacob's son, Judah, would come somebody you've heard of, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the very one we're eagerly anticipating and worshiping in this season of Advent. I mean, it it was wonderful for Jacob to be the father of God's anointed kings But I think it is far more wonderful to be the subject of that great king, Jesus Christ, the the Messiah who has come, and the Messiah who is coming again. Amen? So verse 12 goes on to promise once again. How many times God repeats his promises because we forget them? The promise of, of the land of Canaan to Jacob. This is the land that Jesus would walk upon, and the land to which Jesus will return. This is our land too. It may not be the center of our universe now, but it will be. Jerusalem, so much in the news this week. But we're talking about a heavenly Jerusalem in a new heaven and a new earth. That's going to be our home one day. And through Jesus, God gives us what he promised to Jacob. And Jesus is preparing that place for you even now, right now as we're sitting in this room. Isn't that amazing? 
Second angle of the blessing is this. We come to God to refocus on his faithfulness to us, and he meets us with his fresh promises. He meets us with his fresh promises. We come believing that God will listen, sometimes hoping against hope that he will hear us, right? We come with sorrow on one side and sin on the other and wonder of wonders. When you get alone with God, surrounded by terrible trouble, you discover that he will refresh his promises to you in Christ. You'll open up your Bible, you don't know what to read, and somewhere in what you'll see, God will speak to you in a direct and personal way. Have you ever experienced that? All of Scripture is ours. All of it is God speaking infallibly, truthfully, lovingly to us. But maybe you've had this experience. God will somehow run like a divine highlighter over certain promises for the terrible hour that you are facing. He may take his time. He may even be silent for a season, but if you have a Bible, God will speak to you through it. So when we go to meet with the living God, you know, with your old security gods buried under a tree somewhere, your heart washed clean, build your altar, bow to worship Jesus, just remember how he has answered you in the day of your distress and has been with you everywhere you have gone. You refresh your vows of love and loyalty to him and to him alone. But do not leave till you have heard him speak to your heart, until he has blessed you. Because what will make that a landmark in your life is not that you went to meet with God, but that he came to meet with you. Amen? Amen. We'll ask the worship team to come up and um, spend some time in prayer. It's always good to take a breath and really seek God. Lord, how does, what, what are you saying into my life? Where does this touch right where I am? So let's spend some time in prayer. I'll ask the prayer team if you'll please come down to the front. And uh, if you would like to pray with someone, uh, come on down. Pray. You can pray about anything. It doesn't matter what it is. Let's seek the Lord.